everyone, and welcome to episode number 34 of Relating to DevSecOps, where we explore the development, security, and operational issues of today so that we can talk about real-world software problems with people that face them. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and leave feedback wherever you curate your podcast so that we can bring content that matters to you. You can also reach us by email. Uh, we are checking that constantly at security at r2dso.com. Today, we were going to talk about Kubernetes, and I've got my trusty partner here, Simon. Simon, say hi. Hello, hello. Nice nice to see you again. Yeah. Virtually. Exactly, you too. Um, we were, yeah, like I said, we we're going to talk about Kubernetes, but um, I got this really interesting article in uh, one of my many article intakes, CloudSec lists. You can find them at um, cloudseclist.com. We'll link it in the show notes. Um, but it was about a an attack using Git, which I thought was super interesting. Uh, so we, we, we're going to just jump into that instead. Um, and the article goes into an attack through a pull request into infrastructure via remote code execution. And uh, Simon and I were talking about this offline, and Simon had his, you know, engineer hot take on it and <laughs> i wanted to i wanted also to just like weeping openly in the corner is basically yeah. what i was doing when i read this yeah i wanted to tease that out a little bit because i think that um this is sort of going back to what we were talking about about infrastructure into code and attacks here and it just hit the inbox and was like perfect for this series and to put a a capstone on it so to speak so uh simon I think everybody knows you by now uh, as the engineering counterpart to this whole thing. I um, hope so. Yeah, so we'll we'll link <laughs> the article. Uh, do you want to give an overview of it? You want me to do that, or? Uh, I, I, you know what? Being that this is a, a security threat, I think I think you should provide the assessment first. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's an assessment, <laughs> but um, I will say that basically. Um, if you read this article, you can tell me if I'm wrong in a, in, in going through uh, any of this, but my understanding mm -hmm. is that there's basically a, a pull request into a CI, continuous integration platform, and that CI validates, builds, tests, and runs code. And one of the mistakes that this group recognized out of the gate was that uh, executing code from contributors without a, a manual review was a bad idea. Uh, long story short, this... Um, execution of code resulted in being run in a privileged sense, escaping from a Docker container and allowing basically re remote code execution inside of this infrastructure. So we can, we can break it down a little bit further later in the uh, episode, but um, Simon, I just, I don't want to lose the raw reaction you had um, <laughs> from like, you know, the, the escalation path. I think you know what I'm talking about there. So, um, but that's the general idea. Right, accepting sort of this unvalidated pull request into your uh, CI process, which I know probably sounds crazy to security professionals out there, but we'll we'll rewind and talk about why Earbuffs. that happens um, after the fact. But Simon, over to you, man. Yeah. So no, that's that that sums it up in a nutshell. So yeah, I was reading this article and basically talked about um, you have some GitHub repository. It's open source. You have access to external contributors, which is pretty standard. Um, I can sent this over to me and I started reading. I was like, okay, like what sort of 
crazy hijinks, like weird set of like the lightning struck twice situation did you get where you could have some sort of problem because we've covered this and I think the last three episodes, like to me, pull requests are like my safety blanket. It's where like you can do whatever you want, even if it's broken, like submit a pull request, get some feedback, do what you want. And the way the CICD pipeline was built on this, uh, you had a cluster that had privileges and a container that didn't. And because of the way the pull request was set up, it escalated privileges to run on a new container. Um, and not only was it a new container, it was a new container that was hitting production. Um, and to me, like, I just, I lost my, my mind. Like I, I, this is not something I would technically consider when I'm seeing an external pull request. Like I've contributed to open source libraries before it's, not something that like I would think of doing, but it makes so much sense that, you know, you have this layer of abstraction that now exists. And yes, you have a CI CD pipeline that should be doing things automatically. Things are easy, but at some point you may need to do some sort of production testing. And they managed to leverage that through a pull request, which is when I just like, I, I couldn't, it's just such an interesting concept. It made me think about like things I've done in the past when it comes to submitting code reviews and accepting pull requests. It's just such a, interesting tactic um and something that maybe was not possible years and years ago and we didn't have um such a crazy dependence on like cic pipelines and cloud and everything but um the fact that you could do that through something that hasn't even been approved yet it was just like it was so cool to me in the wrong way like shame on me for thinking it was so awesome but also like just a cool learning experience well the reason you think it's so awesome is because we're bringing you over and on to the security side of things, encouraging exactly. you to, br to break more. But this is where, <laughs> um, so I have so many um, thoughts that spin out from uh, from this attack. And the first is, I mean, and I'll just list them off so that if we don't cover them all, we can go back, review, and create another episode out of it. But really, it 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 makes me think of open source projects. Uh, the approval process for PRs and how much we fight um, making sure that that approval process is strict. Um, it, it, it makes me think of um, just how CI is a, is a vector for remote code execution and how we've, we've, we've oh, talked yeah. about this um, not just in containers like is in this article, but in Jenkins and, uh, administrative privileges in containers and using containers for deployment, like all these things come to come into play. And I think the one that really sticks out for me is that I am constantly talking about how moving to this everything is code mindset that we are behind. Secu the security industry is behind. Everyone is behind. Everything is code automation, you know, making sure that things are consistent and easily uh, repeatable, immutable, that is all, in theory, great security practice. But I think what this article highlights for me is that um, we are almost more trusting now than we ever have been in the past, especially as we are developing code. And we used to harp on this through things like Stack Overflow, um, which, <laughs> quick aside, uh, do you remember Ken's the favorite. Yeah, do you remember uh the 
it was an April Fool's joke staff Stack Overflow put out that it was like a, a small keyboard with three buttons and it was the uh, the copy. It was like Command C V. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, copy paste. Uh, <laughs> that's a real thing now. You can you can buy it. It's on drop.com. Uh, and yes, I'm on that. I'm on that drop because I thought it was hilarious. But we were talking about, you know, reusing code and community code and how that can introduce vulnerabilities and all that kind of stuff. And I think that this is fully realized in something like this where we're in an open source community or we're accepting bug fixes from outside. And that if we don't have folks looking at this that are looking at it not as a analyzing it for malicious activity, not just because we suck and that we distrust everyone, but because there is going to be a, the chances of a bad actor uh, trying to do this are higher when your code is available or when you are accepting external input. And that's what I take away from this. And it, this is like a, a true to life example of this happening um, where through a PR, an automated process, an automated approval, you can get this. So breaking down this attack a little bit more, when you are uh, submitting a PR, especially when it's going to a CI pipeline, you have the ability to commit code, test cases, and execution of those test cases to the PR. And that's where this sort of got hairy, is that At this person, yes, so when you have that low-level access to running and building building and running the code, you have this ability to execute pretty much anything that you want. And so when security folks are like, we want to limit local code execution or we want to limit the build process that you're committing to or who writes test cases or who approves these types of PRs, this is why. Because <laughs> this is what allows anyone to take that low-level access and escalate it to um, something like this, a, a privileged container that has access to other nodes. The other thing is that here is where engineers and developers need to understand the infrastructure that is happening, like that they are creating when you're talking about containerization and when you're talking about things like cluster management and Kubernetes. So, I mean, that that is like what I take away from this is that we all have to be better about understanding more of what we are doing, whether that's infrastructure or code, security engineers, you know, that are infrastructure focused, learning more code because now your infrastructure is code, it's containerization, it's all that kind of stuff. Just the understanding and the blending of these skills becomes more and more important. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, hopefully everything is okay. The, you know, the threat has been remediated. I know the article sounds like they resolved it, which is great. But yeah, I mean, to me, it's just, there's so many awesome ways to automate engineering practices now. And it's so easy to take those for granted. And you look at some of the big companies that, that provide things like, uh, you know, that leverage Kubernetes and, and, you know, the, the AWSs and, and other words, like it's, it's so easy to just assume that they can do no wrong. They're just, yes, they're a big company, but like they can, they can have problems. They can have gaps in their security practices. Um, and you really need to understand what are you choosing to automate and what are the potential, you know, things that you're letting go of as a, maybe a DevOps engineer or a security engineer or, or a product engineer in that scenario. Exactly. Um, well, I, I will say that, you know, in, in the security industry, we have the concept of uh, risk mitigation, risk remediation, um, 
and the ability to divert risk. And so you can offload risk to another party. And, it, and, and I think that that is where we sort of get, um, security has always fought this, by the way, right? Like the, the, the compliance right. versus security sort of asides and memes and gifts and all the things that come out of that conversation. <laughs> um, and, and you can, and, and you should do that where you, where it's possible and where it's relevant. But I think that there's almost this desire to try to like shovel everything on to someone else's responsibility, you know, to someone else. And um, we talked about this a little bit in the past around sort of the, the layer model to security and the application layer versus the physical layer and all the mm -hmm. in-betweens and how cloud affects that particular model. And so um, when you talk about the types of compliance a cloud service provider might offer you, um, you, can, you can rely on them through the shared responsibility model for some of these things. But if you start implementing things like containerization and managed containers and Kubernetes and things like that, like you are still responsible for the implementation of those configurations. Like they can, they can take on so much, but they can't control if you implement it in an insecure way. They give you the ability to shoot yourself in the foot. So you can't really just like offload everything to them. And I think that there's almost this like shirking of responsibility that we like to do to try in, in the, um, in the pursuit of speed, uh, in the pursuit of like uh, speed to deployment. And I just think that that's the, the wrong mindset. I think that really you should kind of understand what the underlying layer is on a even a high level of like what you're implementing, you know, to, to like try to figure out where all this stuff goes. And then, then you can start to trust that, um, you know, these third parties are managing it effectively. But if you go into that blindly uh, or you're just using like best practice guides or you're you're just copy pasting uh, configurations into your environment, like you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hate that mindset of blindly shirking responsibility. I don't know. Where do you, where are you on that? No, I agree. I'm, I'm guilty of doing this too. Like I've, I've done the shared responsibility, you know, not my problem. I'm here to write code, you know, number of clusters, number of nodes is not my thing. That's a DevOps situation. And, and, and that can lead down a really, really tricky path where uh, if you don't have communication in place, you understand what you're asking for. You can really start kind of so not solving a problem, but stepping around it with tooling that is letting you kind of avoid what's the current situation. A good example for me is scalability, like, especially with uh, like, containerization it's really easy to say you know we, we can scale up and down at will um you know there's a cost factor but that's kind of okay and yeah that can that can save you in most states until you get something that's really rough and like you need to understand like where your latency problems are and like it's not to to me i, I think it should be shared across you know all squads and and anything that's automated anything that's that's like quote unquote out of your control you really should understand what what's happening behind the scenes Right, exactly, and I and I think all too much it it ultimately falls on on the world of DevOps, which is unfortunate. No, I I, I agree, um, and I, I I mentioned the risk diverting risk, but it's for for the folks that are going to grill me for that. Uh, I think the official term is transferring or avoiding risk. Um, oh, that's true. And, 
Yeah, so I just want to get that out there for uh, any any trolls ready to 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 go after me. Um, but the yeah, the transferring of the risk to uh, another party is like something that you should do informed, right? And I think that that's like one of the things that we we try to avoid. It's almost like you know what you don't what you don't know can't hurt you. But obviously, in the case of this article, it it did, you know. Yeah, it um, really can. And so it can really bite you in the butt. Uh, and I and I think that we have to like sort of understand and, and research and, and figure out like what's what's going on behind the scenes, and then make a decision of whether or not that vendor is right for us. Um, so there's there's a lot of lessons in here. I think that I I, I would love to tease out. One is just uh, containerization to Kubernetes as like a method of securing your deployment, right? I think that that is one thing that we've we've sort of thought about is that um, you know there's a bunch of benef- benefits to containerization and Kubernetes and and all of that, and so we should just containerize and Kubernetes everything. So, your thoughts on whether or not that is a an, an appropriate response, or whether we should think about it in a different way? I think we absolutely should, but uh, maybe this is a a like a primitive version of thinking about Kubernetes. But I I think of access control along those lines, the same as a file system. You're like going back to our example of that, that pull request incident, you wouldn't share your file system at a, at a business with everyone. You would have certain permissions. You would probably give them some own version of them, some own version of your file system to work with to get their code integrated. And I think that's the same thing you should do with um, containerization. Like there, there is a limit. Yes. You should give them some sort of access to that, they can test their stuff and they can show you what they're trying to do. But at the end of the line, there's certain things that you have to protect. So like, that's, it's kind of where my, my baseline is, is like, would you do the same thing with like your data store, your file system, your secrets, what have you? Interesting. Would you agree with so, that? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I like where you're going with that. Basically think about it, you know, as an, as an engineer, like think about it as your own house essentially. Yeah, Exactly. Interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I'd have to, I have to like sort of think that back a little bit and whether or not it works with how I look at this. Um, <laughs> but I I sort of think of it, I guess, similarly. Um, in but more along the lines of you look at everything the same same way, like, um, but not necessarily my own house. So as an example, if we're, if we're going with the analogy here, I know that yeah, I'm rambling it. to listeners, but I, it's my, <laughs> my brain is working live and in concert. Um, when you look at like, as a, like if you're looking at a, um, a building, right. As somebody that likes to, I guess, pick locks and things. One of the things I like to think of is like, you know, looking where the cameras are or figuring out what the ingress and egress of that building is going to be or um, sort of thinking through like, oh, I know that that thing is vulnerable or that looks like an old version of that particular RFID thing. Um, And so I might think of it through that way, but I'm also sort of actively threat modeling it differently. So I'm thinking of the same risks, but I'm not necessarily saying, I'm not going to like apply the same methodology to that thing. So, um, in the case of my house, I'm not, I probably won't have as high of a security threshold 
for my personal things as I would for like looking at a bank. So I don't necessarily look at them the same way, but I apply the same methodology to looking at them. And I still need to understand what components make up that threat model. And I still need to understand like what, uh, what goes into it. And I'm, and even just like looking at it from, you know, someone coming into a bank or a building or something, I might even look at it as like, I don't have all the information. So I think part of it is as a security engineer, as a developer, as an engineer, you should have some basic understanding of what you are getting into before you start applying security controls to it. So you wouldn't want to go into uh, a bank down the street, you know, uh, whatever, um, Washington County Bank, and automatically assume that they're going to handle everything the same way that Chase Bank does. Because sure. you sort of need to understand that they might not have the budget, they don't have the same assets, they don't have all the same things, but you want to sort of apply the same uh a risk assessment for your own funds of whether or not you want to put that into their bank. So do you do that by just saying, Hey, can I have all of the security information? Just show me documentation. And as long as you meet all of the compliance regulations, like I'm good to go. A lot of people look at it that way, right? Your FDIC. Cool. I'm going to put my, my funds with you, but maybe I won't get a safety deposit box with you, or maybe I won't, you know, put all my, heirloom family jewels into your safe in the back room of this, you know, building that used to be a church. I don't know. But like those things are, are risk um, assessments you make as an individual uh, that you should make when you're building software and you're doing things in Kubernetes, right? Understand Kubernetes. Like if you're making a security decision on the Kubernetes and you don't know what like etcd is or how the network works or what a pod security policy is, go figure it out first, <laughs> then yeah, come go, back. Go find something. Yeah, go, then come back and, you know, look at how your cloud service provider handles that and determine whether or not that works for your organization. You shouldn't just blindly trust these things. And I think that we do that too much uh, as organizations, not necessarily as security organizations or engineering organizations, but just on the whole, we like to shirk and avoid and transfer uh, responsibility because it's easier. And the easy path can get us in trouble. I mean, that that's fair. I guess I'm I'm breaking it down into two boats. Like you've got the the reactive and the pro proactive bunch of people that you'd be dealing with. And I think your situation is probably the proactive where, you know, to give a more engineering centric example, like integration tests that produce data. Like you could have someone who's like very competent and maybe they're not malicious, maybe there are. They have access to maybe your your CI C D pipeline, much like this example cool, I'm going to just like spam your request and just fill up, you know, your S3 buckets with all of this information that I just generated through your integration tests and I'm taking your systems down. Like, cool, we should have things in place where there's like a teardown policy in our integration tests so that that doesn't happen. On the other side, I guess on the the, the reactive side, um, I think I'm, I'm more focused on like external support. So you're looking at open source libraries. There's still a situation in me where there's like, anyone can contribute to these code bases and yes you should have some pretty rigorous standards for pull requests in place but to go to your house analogy you know someone comes in with like a screwdriver and a hammer and they're like i've never done this before i'm here to fix your sink i'd be like cool you need to go to that like 
playhouse that's in my backyard. Show me what you're planning on doing first, and then maybe I'm going to let you in because you're freaking me out right now. So I agree, but also like I think there's a level of trust that I think you need to build based on who you're working with. I love this example and I will tell you <laughs> and I will tell you why because it is still a balance of cost versus skill. Oh, so, absolutely. So, some guy comes in and it's like, "You know what? I need my I need my pipe fixed." Uh <laughs> and it's, you know, my my the my kitchen sink is leaking and I don't I don't, you know, I'm not this is not something I want to do myself and I want to make sure I hire somebody professional, so um, I'm going to go to Angie's list. I'm going to figure out, you know, who, who's like good here. And you read these reviews and you find this person, this person shows up and they, they don't have a website. They don't have any credentials. They just like got really good reviews on Angie's list. There's this trust established. And so you hire them they come in, they do a great job and they have a good price versus someone who is like insured and all this kind of stuff. And this big name company, they're going to charge you a thousand dollars to fix your drain. There's some, there is a risk assessment people are making that it's like different between organizations, whether or not they paid a thousand dollars and they know that if they screw it up, that they at least have some legal fallback to like go and get all this information. The time isn't necessarily important to them. You're also going to have, yes, you're going to have this bootstraps person. That's just like, you know what? I trust, you know, who my other friends go with and, you know, I'm going to use this person and they're going to give me a fair price and I'm going to work with it. But if it turns out to be a very complex problem that you thought was simple, they probably won't know how to handle it. And they're going to fix it knowing how they know how to fix it. And then you're sort of screwed in the end because they're not insured or they're not quote unquote compliant. And I think that's a great analogy because that's exactly what we face in this world is that we are finding this balance between we know that there are like skilled and good people. And we know that there are folks that are just like, it's the cyber insurance argument versus the I want to be actually secure argument is like Ooh, the skill like versus that. cost. And so I, I really like I love that. Um, and going back to that, because if you take the time to like look at your own plumbing a little bit and maybe take some time to like figure out how to do something, you're going to be in a much better spot to determine whether or not that um, Angie's List, um, uninsured, no website plumber is actually skilled or not, right? Because they are above and beyond what you know to do. You can ask them more intimate questions about the topic. You can, you know, even if you haven't done it yourself, you can do your research. And that might be really annoying to them, but you will at least be feel better, be more informed yourself whether or not the answers match what you think they should. And so there's a level of investigation and comprehensiveness that goes into the topic that I think you need to tease out. And I really love that because I think that that's what we need to do more as an industry is tease that out more, get more of the skills, understand more of the infrastructure. Like when we talk about security, understanding coding, it's like, we don't need you to go and build some enterprise web application. We just need you to understand the basics of like Python. We just need to understand, need you to understand the basics of like how to look at code as an infrastructure engineer so that when someone presents it with you in automation, you're like, okay, I get it. Um, but I need some, I need to, I need like an expert to take me through the complications of it. And Kubernetes is no exception. 
right? The CICD pipeline is no exception. Everything has a specialist. And so lean on that, right? Um, I don't know. That was a, that was a, like a lot of rambling from Ken. Uh, Damn it, Ken, that was so deep. Was so deep. <laughs> it's like plumbing and code. <laughs> no, that's so perfect though. That's such a perfect 360. I mean, I was just throwing out a metaphor, but you, you made it work. But I think that like, I don't know, as humans, man, I mean, I think we look at it. I mean, we sort of make decisions the same way. I, you know, I think the logic of it is the same. And so I think it's really great that you take it back to something like your house. You know, uh, I think we were, we're sort of too um, flippant with those examples. Well, like, oh, man, they're going to talk about me with the locks on my door again. You know? <laughs> We do love our locks. Yeah. So it's like, oh, they're going to tell me like, would you leave the front door open? Well, I mean, that is like a legitimate example, but everyone's tired of hearing that analogy in security, right? <laughs> Listen, we, I mean, I think even before we joked about the fact of, you know, zero trust and how possibly could a pandemic hit us and here we are. So I think these are val- valuable examples and metaphors to learn from. I agree. I know that we're waffling a little bit, so I will take it right to the point. Um, if we're gonna if we're gonna take this from Git to something really popular like cloud and Kubernetes and containers, Simon, what are your preferred or what do you think are legitimate workloads for containers versus maybe not so great workloads for containers and Kubernetes? Five words, peace of mind. Just kidding, that's three words. Um, yeah, no, peace of mind. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I you raised a really good example of like someone moved a monolith service to K- Kubernetes. Like, why did you do that? And like with a monolith, I find it a little bit hard to answer that question because typically uh, an a industry that has built a monolith is so, it's such a high point of failure. It's so... Uh, uh, you know, damaging if something were to go down that you invest all of your time in scalability and efficiency and like error handling and everything you can possibly think of. Because if that monolith goes down, you go down. And I think that situation, like to me, and maybe this is my personal opinion, Kubernetes may not be the option for you. If you want to just not worry about like an on-prem instance where you're dealing with people who are actually having to manage that, fine. You mentioned moving to microservices. I think that's where it gets a little bit trickier. And that's, again, it goes to my my comment of when you grow. It's you have all of these different little things and they're growing and scaling and they scale up and scale down and they have cold starts and you've got things that might go down at certain points. And like, I think I've handled all my errors. I think, you know, if this system goes down, it won't be critical, but you now have like 30 of those and they need to scale at different levels and sizes. And now you're like, oh God, I didn't think about this. Like, this is getting a little bit more hairy than I thought. I think, and like I think is the the key the key phrase here. If I let scalability and handling of the actual instances go on someone else that is focused entirely on that, I can focus on the other things that I care more about. And as long as you know that you are passing, you're handling those car keys to someone else, they are taking those car keys and driving off, and you know what that means for your business. 
I think that's perfect because now you can focus on your actual core issues. Um, again, not for everyone, but for me, it's peace of mind, I think is like the big one. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you always, you're sort of relating Kubernetes to manage Kubernetes that you're fair, handing off fair. the keys to your business, you know, and like this sort of sense of like, uh, business is maybe the risk. wrong word there. Yeah. I mean, and, it's interesting to sort of get that mindset from you because I think that what I'm looking at as uh, Kubernetes comes from a different perspective because no matter what, security is responsible for it. For right? sure. So, so when you talk about handing over the keys, I originally sort of went back to, oh, well, you're thinking of AWS and CSPs, but you might mm -hmm. even just be thinking about like DevOps. You know, like I'm handing over part of my application to DevOps. I'm handing yeah. over part of my application to another team entirely. And I think that I didn't quite grasp that initially. So that's an interesting thought because it's almost like you're you're shirking responsibility or avoiding uh, risk before it even gets to a third party. You're doing that. Um, you're seeing that as like a um, an attractive selling point to engineers within an organization. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I did not mean external in that situation. A DevOps is a really, really good example of that. Yeah, it's it's handing the keys of a piece of how your software is going to function. Um, and yes, it's not the business logic. It's not the, the quote unquote code, but it's it's part of your system. It's part of how um, you know where it exists, how it scales, how many pods you have, um, you know what services you have to hit, where do they go, what happens if they go down, and yeah, those are all very valid concerns. But for a product engineer putting on my product engineer hat, you take all of that off of your shoulders and you say like. This is the tooling that we've decided upon. I'm giving this to you. That gives you a lot more bandwidth to focus on the the product centric problems. You know, what do our user, yeah. what does our user base need? How can we fix this? Is scalability a problem? Yes. Let's work with the fact that it is now hosted in X space, um, but also keeping things scalable. It, it it all goes together, but it takes it takes a a level again the peace of mind off of the product engineer where. It's a shared, a shared balance of work. Got it. Now that's that's super interesting, and that that really um, shifts my mindset a little bit because on the security side, like I think that we always look at being responsible for the entire organization. So I don't think we're necessarily always sensitive to the fact that when we shift to these other services that it's alleviating a pain for teams mm. um, in, in, in like in the way that we sort of, because security is almost looking at it as an additional responsibility. So when a product security team and a DevOps team get together and decide that we want to move to Kubernetes, there may be, and there is most of the time, unless that security team is already familiar with those products or those services or those methods, has an additional lift of learning what these new security requirements are, even though it's alleviating pain for both the DevOps and the product team. Oh, for sure. And so, yeah, so like that's a super interesting sort of cultural differentiation I think we should highlight because um, 
you know, we are always like, you should learn more about Kubernetes and you should learn more about this. And that's what I was coming into this conversation thinking of like, if all of these teams just don't understand what they're getting into because I've had the opportunity to learn about some of the security ramifications of all these things. But I haven't really thought about it in that context of like the product security team, whether they offload it to EKS or they offload it to Kubernetes or they use OpenShift or they're putting it in the cloud or having it on-prem, the transfer of that responsibility is the same to you. Like almost, it doesn't really matter where it goes from there, right? That's the next decision for like the DevOps and the security team to, to sort of come to, to come to grips with. If you decide to go to Kubernetes, your responsibility, if you're, if you're divided in that way, stays the same. Is that accurate? To an extent, I think we go from a um, like an implementation perspective to a informed perspective, I would say, on the product engineering side. like We may not necessarily be managing, but we still want to know what's changing and what's going on. And, and I think that kind of coincides with what, what you mentioned about security is like you're still, your role is you're still functioning the exact same aspect. And so that conversation is kind of leaving you out almost entirely because it's, you know, the ownership is changing, but for you, there's no difference. You're still monitoring everything the same way you would be. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I, so, um, I want to try to like close this out, but now I've got like a ton more questions. So maybe that's a, that's a new episode, but, um, I originally sort of went into this conversation thinking like how I was going to take this, um, from, uh, the, the, we talked about the layers before, uh, we mm -hmm. got into this conversation of basically you take this concept of having an application where we we're going from on-prem to cloud. So we had like the code and the cloud to worry about. And then we're adding these two layers of the container and the cluster that um, sort of manages those containers. And I know manage, I'm using the term manages loosely there, but we have <laughs> the cluster and the container uh, in addition to the cloud and the actual app code. And what this makes me think of is, is more like, because I was going to make this point of how application engineers should understand the cluster and the container that they're building and how all that fits together before they decide where to put those clusters. And you're sort of making me think that, you know, in some scenarios, the app team may have decided we're going to go to containerization and, and clustering these in Kubernetes, but really where we, where this Kubernetes cluster exists or how we use it or whether we're using Kubernetes or not, doesn't really matter. That's going to be on the DevOps team. That's like a sort of a different lens and there's a nuance there that I, I would love to explore uh, with somebody from DevOps because um, I think that responsibility sort of gradient uh, Venn diagram uh, can, can go in the sort of a million different directions. Yeah, there's, there's so many different ways you can implement that to be like, oh, you have a DevOps team, but you also have a like, product engineering platform team that kind of does both but still relies on the expertise of devops so yeah it's it can be there's a lot of solutions to that i don't have the the perfect answer but um yeah i mean the shared responsibilities of moving off of just like a standard standalone basic instance um it's 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 it can be sometimes really tricky to understand like where the responsibilities lie and just kind of like playing the not my not my problem got it 
Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think we can sort of close it out there. I know we're trying to land on a half an hour, a bit over. Um, this has been, I know, a bit of a rambly, exploratory conversation between the two of us. Um, but I think it's important, and that's what we're here for, is right to just sort of get these ideas out on paper from two different perspectives, um, on paper, on the audio waves, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but let's <laughs> let's end it there. Uh, look, we can cir- circle back and figure out um, how to take what we've talked about here and turn it into something a bit more concrete. Um, but otherwise, I, th- I feel like this is one of those topics that we could probably sit on here for another two or three hours and uh, and dive into. And so I don't want to do that with all the listeners. Um, so let's we'll circle back and figure out what to uh, what to break out from that. Um, any final words without getting into a diatribe that you would like to uh, throw out there? <laughs> I mean, without like horribly going back to our house analogy, because I mean, episode 35 is definitely going to be a renovation episode where you just talk about renovation ideas. But no, like, yeah, if look you're, out like, if Jojo. You're tw- yeah, exactly. If your if your toilet is broken, like learn a little bit about your toilet before hiring your plumber. Plumber, like you'd be amazed at how much you can learn and fix on your own. And yeah, you might need one, but it's it's always good to just understand more about your space. So it's true. It's toilet true. comments to end the episode. There you go. <laughs> well, I have much to say about that, uh, but before I get into it, we will end the episode there. Um, look, if you like what you hear, um, dear listeners, uh, please like, subscribe, leave feedback, let us know what you want to hear and what you want us to to talk about. Uh, we are here for it. We're here to explore it. Um, nice, right? And I didn't even mean to do that. It's just natural, natural talent right there. Um, <laughs> you can reach us at security at r2dso.com. You can uh, reach us on Twitter at r2dso. Uh, and you can visit our website, www.r2dso.com. Um, we are here for you, and we will talk about what you want to hear. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.